just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Present Influence Podcast. This week, the dark side of influence. Okay, hello, welcome to the very first ever Present Influence podcast. My name is Johnny Ball and I am the founder of Present Influence and also a member of Toastmasters International, which is how I know the lovely Aida Diaz-Ajero. I hope I said it right this time. Yes, you did. Excellent, good, I'm getting there. And so Aida has generously agreed to give up some of her time to come and chat with me in my office, come studio at the moment, about the topic of the the dark side of persuasion, which which was really what got us very excited about it. We started talking about influence generally and then we got more into this and thought hmm, that's going to be an interesting topic for a discussion. I'm going to let Aida introduce herself a little bit more as well so you know who she is. Thank you. So hello everyone, it's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. It's exciting that it's the first one. I wasn't yeah, really aware of that. The first one. You are the primero guest. Awesome. So um, just a little bit about myself. I am Spanish, uh, although I grew up in the Netherlands and so I'm multicultural. And uh, as we both live here in Valencia, beautiful sunny Valencia, Spain, um, you'll hear more about my experience and John's experience throughout the podcast. But just to let you know that I've worked a lot in the pharmaceutical industry where I've done a lot of selling. So we'll have some interesting examples to talk about that and also about just life in general. And then, well, let's see how this rolls. Interesting. It's funny that most of my examples that I've been coming up with have probably got more to do with religion than with selling, but, you know, certainly been involved in that side of things as well. Um, But, yeah, my my whole upbringing was very religious. I mean, it's been a... a strategic... It's been a very big part of my life, anyway, nonetheless. Mm. However... um, one of the things we talked about was, uh, I wanted to get things started with, talking about where you may have experienced the darker side of influence yourself. And I know you had a, an incident recently, so perhaps you could tell us something about that. Sure. So uh, there are several examples, but there's one that just really pops up in my mind. And it was very recently as I was doing some groceries in a mall that, as you know, here in Valencia, we don't have very good quality water to drink from the tap. So I came up with the like 18 bottles of water, and this salesperson just approached me to offer a, uh, a free filter installation in my sink at home. Which sounds like something you'd want. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, would be, it would mean that I wouldn't have to carry those heavy bottles home. And it seemed very convincing because I thought, there's some trap somewhere. But he really explained that it was free because the government realized that he, they needed to provide better quality water to all uh, citizens. So I bought into it, and when they called me to the appointment, I made sure that I asked again if it was free. And finally, this technician shows up at home, and I make sure that my boyfriend's there with me. So it's a very, it had to be a very specific moment. And he's there for like an hour, and he's 
taking test, testing our water, measuring the quality, and at some point I'm like trying to speed him up and say, so listen, what what where is the catch here? What 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 is it that is not free? And he would say, no no, everything's free. So he would keep us you know engaged in the conversation and going and telling us how dangerous it was to drink the water because it could affect your livers and health issues and stuff. And I was sitting there thinking, my God, if he told this story to some old granny and not someone that actually knows a little bit about health. And well, as things progressed, obviously at some point, he ended up telling us where the catch was. And it was that, yes, they would give us a free filter for life, but that filter needs maintenance. And the maintenance has a price. And we had to agree to a 10-year contract worth of upfront payment of whatever maintenance that thing had to do at home. And we, I mean, we both looked at each other and was like, no way. This is not something we're doing. And it, I felt guilty for the guy because he spent a whole hour there. But it's just, that, that to me is an example of undue influence, especially by the way it was set up. Yeah, so you were like strung along the whole time thinking this is free, I'm not going to have to pay anything. It's like, oh, this seems too good to be true. And that part of you in your head is going, no, this is too good to be true. <laughs> so the alarm was wrong. What, what, what was the outcome of that? Well, we explained that we didn't think it was worth our investment in that. We, because the way they actually, the way he made the calculations to make it worth our while, it was profit-based. Right. So he, he actually took out and calculated how much water we would, we would drink and how much that would cost to buy in the supermarket and how mm. much we would spend on the maintenance of the filter. And he, for him, it came out as you know a, a, a positive difference. Right. But not in my mind when I was telling him, no, listen, I don't buy that water, I buy cheaper water, and I don't drink that much, I drink this much, but he wouldn't do it my way. He would just calculate it the way he'd been taught to calculate The way that fitted with what how he wanted to sell. Exactly. Okay. So, yeah, so for you that was, would you say that was unethical? Did you, did you think this isn't, a, this isn't a nice way to sell? I mean, what did you feel about the whole experience? Well, I didn't like it because I thought, like I said, I haven't bought into it. But I'm sure that there's tons of people that actually have. And then we researched on the internet, and there's, like, there's an actual scam out there. All right, with if, those people? With these people. Oh, wow. So, but I, I only knew that afterwards. Mm. But I can so imagine that... they set that, you up with this contract and then... No, I mean, they oh, do right. deliver. <laughs> they right. deliver, but the, the way that they are selling the product is how, you know, it's, it's, it's unethical. Because right. they're making you believe that the water you're drinking is not good for your health. Well, that's, that's not true. It mm. just doesn't taste nice. Right. But there is no, nothing that will hurt your health. And of course, if you go no. to a home where there's a diabetic lady already paying a lot of money out of the government's pocket for medication, right. and she's already had a scare or two, and you tell her, yeah, you're not drinking the best water, and that might be a pro causing you these problems, she's more readily going to bite into it, right? Of course, you're going to think, well, you know, you, you have a problem, uh, even if it's one that may not be related to this, I'm selling you this as a solution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so there's a bit of snake oil. Yeah, yeah. Good, for, good for all remedies, but uh, but doesn't actually necessarily cure anything. Great. I mean, I think having pure drinking water is nice, but um, there are ways to there are probably better ways to attain that. Yeah, absolutely. But it's definitely a good, a good example of how how that can happen just on the street. And one of the things I sometimes feel with that is sometimes it's our politeness that stops us saying. Mm, hang on a minute. Mm. Did you, was, the, was that a thing yes, for you? Yeah. It was a thing. It was a th and that's why I let him continue for the whole hour. Like I, I was getting impatient, and you could tell by the way that I, you know my 
my body posture was changing and the way I was addressing the uh, technician. Uh, but I, out of politeness, I just let him continue. And although I asked him for the price, I didn't really push on, you know. And by the end, I was trying to find a way to tell him, listen, this is just not something. And I would have told him, I think you're scamming people. But uh, I, I, I couldn't find the words. Right. We don't, we don't necessarily, most of us don't want to be so rude or forthright and, and just kind of think, let's just keep this civil as well because just get you out of the house. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was also, it was 7 p.m. So the guy was doing a lot of hours and he still had to go to another house. Right. He, he may not, I mean, he may not even thought that there was a problem with what he was doing. Who knows? But, no, uh, I'm sure he didn't. But, but, but the way he was trying to convince us that our water wasn't pure, I, I thought that was very misleading. Mm. Mm, well, putting it in a frame that maybe doesn't even really exist for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but makes it look like it's like a contrast frame, mm -hmm. but one that isn't wasn't even relevant to you particularly. And the whole the, like the whole props that he used, he came in with a big suitcase with a lot of that material, and he actually got some you know testing tubes and put some stuff in the water. That, it looked professional. Mm. And the guy could speak really well. Yeah. So. Well, that helps. You need to have a bit of sales patter to get mm -hmm. people engaged, right? And yeah. uh, if you're not very approachable or friendly, then people aren't going to want to stick around talking to you for very long anyway. Absolutely. And you know, as a salesperson myself, I know that sometimes when you try to convince a customer to prescribe a certain drug for patients, you actually portray the problem with the current treatments so right. that they understand that they have a benefit from what you're offering. So I felt that he was doing that, that it was just mm. too exaggerated. Okay. And it was, it was too manipulated. I think this is this is maybe a sort of more commonly encountered kind of uh, persuasion tactic sort of thing where we have, we all come into contact at some point with the unethical salesperson, right? I think it's one of the reasons why sales as a, an industry has a bit of a bad rep and lots of people say they don't like sales, but what they really mean is they don't like the sleazy side of sales or that they've had bad experiences with sales and that's what they've associated with it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of interesting. I think sales in itself isn't that, but uh, that's something that you know, we tend to remember the bad stuff more than the good, right? I agree. I agree so much. So much so that I remember once, before starting as my first experience as a sales rep, I worked for a really uh, big multinational company, and they spent a lot of money on training. And the, right. the onboarding training course included a one hour, I don't know how long it was, but it felt like an hour, um, of just demystifying what a salesperson does. And the word selling was something that we had to get comfortable with. Right. And understanding that telling the benefits of a product for people's benefit, there's nothing wrong with it or unethical about it. Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been at those kinds of trainings myself where you really need to uh, reframe people on what sales is. And you start getting just just as people to throw out what you what they think about in relation to that, and that's where you start exactly. getting all those used car salesmen or you know. Uh, sleazy salesperson or trying to get you to buy stuff you don't really want and that's what people associate with it. No, and specifically for the pharmaceutical industry which has a really, you know, bad image still, then yeah, it's really important to go through that with everyone that's involved in influencing doctors to make a decision. Yeah, for sure. So my, my, my story of influence that, uh, of hidden dark influence that I've shared with, with you before. I was going to ask you for your experience. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll share it, but you know, you've, you've had it before, but we'll, I'll share it again because I think it's, uh, it's an interesting one that uh, I, um, I was raised in a religious environment and around the age of 14, I was already starting to move away from that. And at 16, 
I went to the US on to actually do some work for the church and uh, I am no longer a part of the <laughs> church in any way, shape or form and, uh, and a confirmed atheist these days. I've got my uh, Richard Dawkins fan club card somewhere and um, that's not true. But <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine you doing that. I remember being 16 years old and working, doing some work with this church in Richmond, Virginia and as a treat they taking their whole youth group to this theme park which turned out to be a Christian theme park. I had no idea that there was such a thing but there was. It didn't really existed. So we went to this place called King, I think it's Kings Park Dominion it was called and it was a pretty decent theme park, you know, a good roller coaster, you know those ones where you're suspended and you can, nice. you've got nothing beneath wow. your feet and that was pretty cool, I mean I, I had some fun there. Um, but you know they had like a karaoke thing where you could go and record a song so and it was, was all Christian theme, music Arcade. and all this kind of stuff. But, oh yeah, the, the, there were little bits of uh, Jesus here and there. You know? I, I don't remember it being especially. Uh, you know, it wasn't like religious symbolism everywhere or anything like that. It wasn't like uh, entering the gates of heaven to go on every ride or it wasn't that uh, in your face. But in the evening, there was, I guess, what they call a revival meeting. So you're invited to go to this meeting, and it's this big emotional event, and they have all these people giving their testimony, their, their story of how they came to become Christians. And um, some of it was getting, there's one guy that's like preaching, I guess, and getting really, really emotional. And as he's getting more and more emotional, the music is swelling up, all these emotional strings. And I'm just listening to it thinking, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. and listening to this music kind of and I'm thinking well the music's very emotional and this guy's very emotional and I'm even seeing people uh, they're inviting people to go up and commit their lives to, to God and all this stuff and, and I'm, I'm just watching it for the first time ever really at something like that With feeling detached eye. and critical and just thinking this is pure emotional manipulation Especially with the music and everything. Especially with the music. I think music and a lot of art forms have the ability to bypass our conscious thoughts. And for us, you know, how many times do you watch a film and you don't really often notice the musical soundtrack, but the music is almost telling you how to feel. Like in a horror film, you'll get the staccato <laughs> strings and the, and the screeching violins. Or in a, in a romantic film, you'll get the smooth violins or the uh, light flute music. The music, you don't necessarily notice it, and you're not really meant to, but it directs the emotion of what's going on. And certainly, I mean, churches aren't the only place to, places to use that, but they're one of maybe, some churches are one of the most obvious ways of, that that happens. And I don't think you realise it. But that's the first time I was looking at it thinking, this Especially is... at that age, right? When yeah. everyone around you is actually letting themselves go into it. Yeah, I think it was possibly one of the, you know, an age where... I, I think they say was it, 14 is the age of reason or something like that. So, so I mean, I, I'm still sort of developing into my, my age of reason and, and get, becoming a, maybe becoming a bit more sceptical. I was asking a lot more questions, all this kind of thing. And that, but that was the first time I stepped away and took a look at it all and thought, I, I don't agree with this. Mm. I think this is people who are going up on the stage and saying, yes, I believe in it all. I don't think they even know what they're committing themselves mm. to. I think they're just getting swept away with the emotion of it. And that kind of brings into um, one of the things that I, I shared with you before we, we got together some of the background information mm -hmm. about hidden influence. And that would tie in with one of Robert Cialdini's uh, influence 
point, which is uh, the commitment, mm -hmm. consistency. Right. Yeah. So when you make a commitment to something like that, even if you don't understand what you've committed yourself to, there's that part of your brain that says, well, I'm committed to this now. And whether it's a religion or a political party or a, some kind of movement, you are also committing yourself to their dogma. Mm -hmm. By that, you know, whatever, whatever they believe is what you're now supposed to believe. So you are committing yourself to an identity that fits in with their dogma. So if like they don't believe in marriage equality, then you don't believe in marriage equality anymore. If they don't believe in, as if some churches don't believe in interracial marriages, mm -hmm. then that's what you don't believe in anymore. All these kinds of things that you are going to be taking on because you have chosen to identify yourself with that. And we don't like to think of ourselves as being inconsistent. So you've made this consistent commitment. And so to keep that up, you have to now adopt all these beliefs that aren't necessarily yours, but belong to the group. Right, and we see that happening more often, I mean, in other examples. And, and yeah. Cialdini in his book, they talk about how when once you make a decision, you stick to the decision more because you've actually made the decision to, and, and it makes you continue with it. That's where commitment and consistency mm. comes from, right? Absolutely. And, and there, are, there are so many other elements to it. The first time I ever read the book, uh, and you know, if you're interested in the book, it's called Influence the Psychology of Persuasion. And it's by Dr. Robert Cialdini. And it is really a masterclass in the science of influence and persuasion. Uh, one that is worth everybody reading. I think for me, the first time I read it, I felt like the veil had been lifted and that I really started to understand all these ways that I've been getting influenced in my life. And so for the first time, I guess I knew in some senses, but in others I didn't. But I definitely saw more clearly that there was intentionality behind it and that the people who were doing the influencing gen generally knew what they were doing. So that was really the first time for me that was a bit of a wake-up call, sort of saying, well, now you can see it more clearly and you can actually see what they're doing and how they're doing it and why they're doing it and how they are working on our more automated natural responses to things to get you to comply. Mm -hmm. So as I was listening to your story, I was thinking for me where the evil is or is in the age of the people in that mm. group. It's also in the in the way that they've been raised, right? So when you put that group of people together that believe the same things and that have been taught to believe those things by their authority figures, which are their parents and their, yeah. their whole surroundings, they're just so easy to manipulate. And that's where, for me, that's where it's undue. Is that the same for you or how you thought of other... Nothing to know about religion in its con historic context, but it's quite another to be taught these um, religious stories as if they were true. Mm. Uh, whereas, uh, okay, we may believe that they are, but, but ultimately, you know, if they were true, everyone would believe it. Mm -hmm. So you don't actually have proof that they are true. Otherwise, you know, there would be one religion and everyone would believe it uh, because we'd know, or you know, they wouldn't have to accept it, but they would have to believe that it was true. There'd be evidence. There'd be evidence, exactly. The one thing that all of them seem to be uh, a bit lacking in. So yeah, I think that is a part of it, but I don't think it's the bigger part of it, because I think childhood indoctrination is a bit of a different thing. Children are like sponges, and they generally accept what you tell them. You know, if you if you have a child and you they grow up and you tell them that there are fairies in your garden, they're going to grow up believing that there are fairies in your garden. And at some point, they may get they may or may not get to a point where they no longer believe that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
But they may see some things that they can't explain sometimes. Maybe they'll see fireflies and you might say, well, they're fairies. Well, doesn't this happen with Santa Claus, right? Exactly the same thing. And so you think, what's the harm in it? Teach, telling your kid that something is real that doesn't actually exist. But I see that as a bit different to the dark side of influence. I'm not sure it's a, a dark thing. I think it's okay to let kids have their imagination. And, but at some point, you know, at some point you kind of have to tell them Santa's not real. There's no fairies in the garden. But it's still fun to imagine those things and to play with them. Yeah, well, I mean, that just resonates with something I heard yesterday watching a TV show. They were talking about when it's okay to lie. Mm. Or when to tell the truth, and there you go, that's undue influence also, or undue communication. And I, I found it interesting that one of the characters was very uh, innocent in his asking, um, and one of the other characters mentioned, well, it's okay to lie, just tell the truth when it's going to help. If it's not going to help, then don't tell the truth. And I guess with Santa, it's kind of that way, isn't it? I mean, if you, if you just keep the myth going, for a while, it just get, it has kids all excited about this figure that is going I, to I come. I certainly was. So was I, and I wouldn't have changed it for the world. But there's also that point you get to where you realise that your parents have been lying to you, <laughs> and that Santa isn't real, and that's pretty disappointing. It is disappointing. But it's, I don't think it's a bad thing to go through. No, I think it just teaches you about life, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's it does. resistance and... There are, there are people that... I, I'm aware of people, I don't say I know specifically I have any friends who do this, but people who won't lie to their children about these things. So mm. they they say, no, well, how Santa Claus stuff, but he's not real. And so they talk about monsters and stories, but they're not real. And so they, they kind of grow up with all that. And I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't say whether that makes a difference to their to their childhood experience or not. Maybe it takes away some of the awe of wonder, but then on the other side maybe it just has kids growing up more rationally seeing the world as, no, nah, that's not real. Well, I don't know what's better. I don't think there is a better way. Just whatever works for the parents is best because that's, they're, they're going to the ones that are going to have to go through with it, right? Is it always about what the parents want? I think that's, that could be a whole call in itself, it a whole podcast in itself about whether what parents want for their children is the right thing because being into religious homeschooling and all this kind of stuff as well. So is, that, what, is what the parents want what's best for the child? Mm. Not always. No, no. no Anti-vaxxers, you know, that's a whole big thing as well. There is. So, uh, yeah, there's again, a whole different part. But to, to bring it back to the general influence thing, though, in Cialdini's book there are six key points of influence. I've helpfully written them down for us. Uh, so reciprocity, scarcity, authority, consistency, liking, and consensus. I'm not going to go into what all of them are. You can read the book or you can get a... Uh, review, watch a review video on YouTube or something like that. Um, but you can get an idea of what these things are. And they're worth knowing about. I've delivered a numerous, numerous talks on this particular topic because I think it's so important. And I want people to, I want people to know about it. I want people to understand where they're being influenced and where they might not be seeing it. These things themselves are not bad. The ways that people influence aren't bad. So the only morality around these things is what you do with them, of the person using it. Actually, like, I believe that they're useful. If you yeah. know about these things, it can help you go through life a lot easier <laughs> and relate yeah. to people and, and get your way. But what you say is really important. It's not about using them. Mm. It's to what end. Right. Okay. 
I, I listened to a really lovely story recently, and it was in a book that was about influence. It was kind of a cute story about the a little girl using some of these principles to convince her parents to get a puppy. <laughs> and she did it really well. Nice. And it's like, okay, this is a cool thing for, for kids to have. I, I think she actually got the puppy as well, but they probably well they were probably already going to do it. <laughs> Who knows? But, uh, but yeah, I just I just kind of like that idea that you know, we can we can it, it's it's a weapon. Uh, Cialdini calls them weapons of influence, right? Well, they are. And they are they they are weapons, and weapons can be used to attack, and weapons can be used to defend, and they can be used to for good or, or for bad depending on the person using them and the morality of the person using them. So there isn't any good or bad to these specific tools or concepts, but, uh, but certainly they are open to, uh, to malediction. <laughs> so if you had to stop here and define what undue influence is, mm. could you do that? For me, it is influence for personal gain without ethical um, without an ethical framework so because it is it's okay to use these weapons for our own personal gain as long as you're not hurting other people is that what it is that's arguable right it's arguable i would say ethical influence may be the easier part to describe because ethical influence to me is where you are using these tools to influence somebody to something positive, something that's going to benefit them, or maybe to enrich or empower their lives. So that is something I would see as ethical influence. For example, if I had a service or a product that I knew would be really, really beneficial to you or to anyone else, I'm going to sell that product. And I'm going to sell it because my belief is that you are going to get a lot of value from it. Mm -hmm. You're going to get a lot of benefit from it. and and it shouldn't be a difficult decision to want to have this in your life. And that, to me, would be ethical persuasion then. It might be the case that you don't see that, or that you don't agree with me, or you don't buy into it, or that you don't have the rapport, or, or that I don't use any of these ethical uh, persuasion tools, or any of, these, sorry, any of these weapons of influence in a way that convinces you. That's possible. But nonetheless, the persuasion itself being applied would at least be from an ethical intention. Mm -hmm. Right. That's my take on it. Great. I think that does helps. that make sense? To me, it does. Yeah. I don't know if you want to go a little bit deeper into it. Like, I, I would like an example of unethical influence and why it's unethical. Another, uh, maybe it's a, maybe you want to go back to the religious example, or you've got another one up in your mind. One, I would say, has been in the region of multi-level marketing. Have you ever come into contact with multi-level marketing? Uh, that would be similar to Mary Kay, right? They do. Mary Kay is an example of multi-level marketing for sure. Uh, not one that I've actually come into contact with, but there are many. There, there really are many. Um, people are more likely to have heard of things like Amway or uh, there's... Uh, there's one that my brother did, which I forget the name of now, which is all these health bars and, mm -hmm. and shakes and stuff like that. And so there's a lot health-related here. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot health-related. And, I, and I've, been, I, I, I've joined more than one in my life. And uh, this, when I first decided that I wanted to do, when I was getting into personal development, self-empowerment, all that kind of thing, it seemed like a good idea to have my own business, and that seemed like a good way to start your own business because they have the whole framework there that everything that you would 
probably need to know about running your and setting up your own businesses there. The products are all, already there. The uh, distribution is already there. And so all you have to do is convince everybody you ever meet to buy <laughs> to buy it and to register as a seller themselves. So um, it, That's it. It's not just to buy. It's to register as a seller themselves, the way, from which you benefit. The way to make money in network marketing is by registering more people in in the scheme. So people often compare it to pyramid schemes. Or pyramid schemes are illegal, like just full stop. Uh, it's a pyramid structure, but it's not a pyramid scheme. Pyramid schemes are. Oh, I didn't know there was a difference. Pyramid schemes really well are more, more like where people are investing money into something, but only the people at the top levels of, are, are ever going to get paid out. So just keep bringing more and more people in, uh, like on an investment structure. And so people are investing to get a return, but they'll pay out the people near at the top. But then all the people at the bottom, at some point, it'll just get shut down and disappear or whatever. And, and that's all gone. So no one else gets paid out on it. That's a pyramid scheme. That's very, very illegal. The people confuse multi-level marketing with that because it has a pyramid structure. Mm -hmm. So you have your seller and you have then the people that they sign up below them and then the people who sign up below them. So most of them will probably have one or two levels of commission. Now, not necessarily in itself unethical, but some of them are. Mm -hmm. Certainly they target women more than men and uh, they just do. Um, and, and they build up community in the same way that um, any organization builds up community, that a lot of the whole thing with the multi-level marketing stuff that, that is influential is that you're a part of this community that you then don't want to leave. And um, that's going to tie in with some of the stuff we're going to look at a bit later about uh, okay. about cults. Yeah, interesting <laughs> topic too. Yeah, definitely an interesting topic. Um, but with, with multi-level marketing, they, they encourage, they actively encourage you to make a list of every single person you know. And then you're going to approach, essentially you're going to approach everyone you know to buy your amazing products, to buy your amazing uh, milkshake or... Um, makeup. Right. Makeup, yeah, there's plenty of makeup ones and su supplements. And I know there are some that with essential oils and, yeah. and all sorts of things. So the, the, these things exist in many, in many different ways. They look like a great opportunity because um, you don't really have the overheads of a shop, so that that's kind of cool. You don't have to do much, but nearly all in nearly all cases, you have to make a reasonably significant investment in buying an amount of product. And in the majority of cases of people who go into network marketing, probably I, I think the last sort of study I saw into this was estimating somewhere around 95% of people who ever go into them um, spend more than they ever make. My mum is one of them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. For sure. But yeah. the interesting part is that you don't only make a list of people you're going to sell to, you make a list of people that you want them to sell for you. Oh, really? Wow. Is that, is that where the unethical part comes in so you really, tell me I mean I, I'm not sure that's unethical but I do think it's a good way to lose friends and it happens yeah yeah and, and I know people who've done it uh, and you know I know people that I've had those things before it hasn't happened for a while but you get a random message on Facebook from someone that you haven't seen or spoken to in several years uh, oh how nice to hear from you and then they're trying to sell you something oh well you know, <laughs> uh, oh, that's why you're contacting me. Okay, I get it. Uh, no, 
but <laughs> so so you know I, I I'm very likely you know if, if I give a polite response then they're lucky um if I <laughs> I mean if I, if I don't respond that's probably the, the best the thing best. for them if, if I do they're probably going to get a bit of a mouthful from it uh, because I really dislike that so you think about why why do I dislike that because I don't I don't see that as being ethical as in, you want to use me to get a sale so you're, you're using the fact that we have contact with each other at some point in our lives as a as a leverage point to potentially make a sale what into if, business. What if it could be in your interest? Well, I'm sure to some level it maybe it is. Do you know how they always say, um, or maybe you don't, but very often it's like um, they will advertise their business as an opportunity and mm -hmm. they won't tell you what it actually is. That's very common with network marketing. Right. I, I feel like I'm shitting all over network marketing here, and I'm sure it's not all bad. I just know so much of it is. And I have friends who do it. I have clients who do it. Oops, sorry. And um, so it's not my favorite. Uh, and I, I hope I'm fairly honest with them. Though. I'm not a fan of network marketing for, for, for these reasons, because I, I my experience of it hasn't been good. Um, I've liked, generally I've liked the products, that I come into contact with, but I nearly always find them to be overpriced. Mm. The only way you get the discounts usually is by registering yourself. Right. I didn't realize that. So that's where I guess there's some unethical. You'll only get a discount if you actually buy for yourself. Well, they, sellers can give you a discount to get you into the products, but then if you want to keep getting them at that disc mm -hmm. a discounted price, or if you want to get them at cost, then you have to register yourself. So if you like the product, it's already a so so they will right. So they they will call that being a smart customer, hmm. where you are you're a customer. What well, you're you're a customer because you want to get the products at cost, but you're not necessarily interested in bringing people into the business. However, every time you buy products for yourself, or maybe you buy some as gifts for somebody else, or some other that can happen too, the person who brought you in is getting a profit from that. Right. They're, get, they're getting a percentage. So part of the cost that you're paying is also paying towards commission for those people above you. And that is probably the reason why so many of these products are so expensive, because it's not just, you're not really getting the at-cost price, right? You're, you're not getting the factory price. You are getting the price, that price that plus all of the, the commission levels that have to go up as well. Yeah, that's a lot of money. That's, uh, yeah. Potentially, so I think that's why so many of these things are pretty expensive. The the part that I find unethical about multi-level marketing, I guess, in general, and this isn't all of this isn't everyone who's involved with it, but it's just something that seems to happen a lot, is that they very rarely will tell you what it actually is. Part of the reason for that is that often they won't admit that it's multi-level marketing or network marketing, as it's called, because so many people have negative associations with it. Whether it's like they just say, oh, it's a pyramid scheme because that's what they've heard before. Mm -hmm. That's probably one of the most common reactions that they get if people have heard of it before. Um, or they just they just think you're trying to sell them something. Mm -hmm. And uh, What do they call it then? They will call it an opportunity. I was recruited into a multi-level marketing company with that. Um, People, people want money, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a reality. And so when people will see adverts saying, no, uh, the advert I saw was like, come and join our friendly, fun business opportunity. 
And I think, okay, well, a friendly, fun business opportunity sounds... Appealing. Appealing, yeah. yeah I like the sound of that. Call the number, speak to some very nice people, and I have to say they're very nice people. Um, no, no issues there. I don't think anything that they were doing was unethical. I think they were genuinely making a, making a go of it themselves and trying to make a business. I um, think it's the structure itself which is unethical. I think people sometimes end up doing slightly unethical things and rationalising it. I don't know that the structure is unethical, but I think it sets up, it sets this up for people to maybe be a bit unethical with how they approach it. So I, I think people will end up making sales or bringing people in, not because it's necessarily best for them, but because they want to make money out of this business. And making money is, isn't, in, isn't unethical in itself. But making that your primary reason for for doing this, you know, I think very few people go into these things thinking these products are so fabulous I just have to get them into the hands of everybody. Yeah. People go into thinking, well, I may like the products myself and I, I wouldn't have a problem selling them to other people. It's not so terrible. I mean, it's not. We're not talking evil schemes here or anything like that. Uh, it's just a bit. Well, okay, is is that the best way to be approaching things? Is that the best way to be getting into things? Uh, so in, in the book, the, the Millionaire Fast Lane, one of the things that gets talked about in there is that um, there are barriers to entry in, into business. Uh, and so what he advises people to steer clear of businesses and industries where there is a low barrier to entry. So if you can buy your way in with a $200 investment into a business... That's just an MBA law. It's like invest <laughs> in businesses that will have high barriers of entry because then you get rid of competitors. Right. And it'll be a much cleaner market. Right. Well, it's not, it's not just that. It's that uh, if, you can, if you can buy into a business with a $200 investment and, and you now have a business, anyone can do it. Yeah. So, so there's, no, there's no real barrier to entry other than getting $200 together. Making a decision. Yeah. And so what, what does it mean? Most people who go into this as well have no idea what they're really getting themselves into. And I think that's maybe where it becomes a bit more unethical. So people don't know how to sell. Mm. People don't know um, how really how they're going to have to make money from it. Because what they will tell you is that, oh, well, it's just recommending things. Mm. Like you would recommend somebody to go and see a cinema, a film in the cinema that you just liked. And you go and tell your friends to, oh, I've got to see this film, it's really good. It's like that. And it's not really like that because you're not getting commission from the cinema for, for getting people to go. And you're not talking specifically to people about that because you want to get commission for recommending the film. And they will so also not, not the yeah, absolutely agree with you. They will not warn you that some of your friends might be offended from you're trying to push your products <laughs> onto them. They definitely don't warn you about that. They also don't warn you. One of the things that they advertise is, and this is where I think the companies often are unethical with this, very often you see network marketing companies advertising that um, you, can make, you can make a lot of money doing this part-time. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. And so you can do this around your regular job, you can you know, fit this in, you can have more time at home with your kids. The only people I've ever come into contact with who've made any decent money through network marketing do it as a full-time business. Mm. And they are really committed to it. And at some point, yes, they are able to go part-time with it and still be raking in the cash. But unless you are really, really lucky and you bring someone into the business who is a real go-getter and you're going to make a fortune out of their commissions coming because you're in their upline, then the chances are that 
you are going to be spending most of your time trying to motivate your downline who are probably going to be fairly disinterested and will disappear at some point because that's what most people do in network marketing and you have to try and bring in more people and it's going to create a cycle of frustration and it's going to create this idea that I'm no good at business because I can't make this network marketing thing work. Whereas, you know, they just say it all looks so easy. The diagrams are talk to two people and sign them up and then they're going to talk to two people and sign them up and then they're going to talk to two people and sign them up. And before you know it, you have this whole sea of people and you're going to be in commission off all of them. Doesn't work like that. Sometimes. <laughs> not very often. Not, not, I mean, unless you're way at the top, one of the first ones. Right. But even then, it doesn't work. This reminds yeah. me of a, a, a recent research that I've been doing into um, blogging. Mm-hmm. I think we also talked about this before, but uh, obviously haven't told where I was listening today. And um, uh, as I was looking into what a blogger does and how you can monetize a blog or, or how to actually put up a blog that has that has some really, really good traffic, I came across... Um, Several people that thought were doing a really good job, and you mentioned that for you to be uh, persuaded into something, you have to trust the author, right? right. And I started to trust these people because I thought they were very authentic. They were not only writing their blogs and doing and providing some really valuable content for their readers and for their whoever accessed the blog, but they were also trying to share with people how they've gone to be such successful bloggers. I trusted them until the point where. I started to buy some of the products they were promoting to make my own blog better. Right. And at the point where I saw that they were actual, they were, they were making money out of giving me advice, that's where I felt scammed. And I understand that people need to live off money, and I understand that it's okay, they're actually helping me, so I understand that, of course, they have to make a living. But I'd rather buy their book than actually, you know, click a link on their site and realize that because they're, it's, one in a lifetime opportunity to buy this amazing course and you'll know how to do SEO and how to have your blog way up there or buy this gallery of photos that for a once in a lifetime. And then, you know, I've been following bloggers long enough that I'm now at a second turn being sold that amazing. You, you become immune to that pretty quick, I think. I was so disappointed at myself, though, John. I felt like yeah. I, I can't believe I fell for this. I know we, we talked about this a little bit before, and one of the things I said to them was I don't really have a problem with people who are affiliates to other people's products. You know, that's always going to happen. And some, sometimes you maybe buy a product or something, or you may sign up to a newsletter, and then you start getting emails every day from this person, and they're trying to sell you other people's products or services that they feel are relevant. If they're, if they're providing stuff that's actually interesting and useful to you, then there's not really a problem. But when it's just coming through every day because they want to hit sales, you know, on, some, on some level, I kind of respect it because you've got to make money and probably some of them are probably doing very well out of it. But they're not being dishonest. No, I'm, I'm sure they're not. So I don't, I don't see it as being undue or unethical influence in those circumstances. If people are very clear... For example, I've done things before where I've had affiliate links to things, and so I will be clear about that. It's like I have a link. To, it's my affiliate program. They were crystal clear, right? But it wasn't. So, it was the fact that I really believed that I could become them, right. right, and make money off of my blog, and if I did things the way they had done it, and it's probably true. But I don't know. At some point, I just felt disappointed at myself for buying into it. I was. I, I felt uh, naive. 
There, there may be, I mean, that, that's always going to be the case. It's the same reason why people um, buy gym memberships every January, right? <laughs> well, I think that's for other reasons, right? <laughs> Sex appeal is kind of... But, it, but it's a, there's a certain naivety to it. It's like, if we really know ourselves, then we kind of know that... Um, We're not going to go to the gym. By, come, February, <laughs> come February, the gym's going to be empty. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they, again, that... I mean that more from the point of the the gyms, really, that they rely on that. They rely on people's um, desires, uh, uh, on people sort of visualising themselves. Like they want you to visualise yourself having your um, having your flat stomach and bikini body or whatever it is for, for the summer. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, that's an enticement. That's a very strong attraction to do that. But the reality is they know that most people are going to take out a gym membership um, for at least six months, maybe a year, and probably stop coming after a month or a couple of months. And that's fairly normal. And they won't cancel the gym membership because they think, well, I should be going. And and really they rely on that. Is it unethical? Yeah, a bit. A bit. You know, to know that you're bringing people in who are going to pay for products and service that they may not use for the whole time. But also there's a, there is a level of personal responsibility that comes into that. So I don't think any of us really are so dumb as to think that uh, we couldn't cancel our membership and yeah. stop paying for it. Um, it's just this mental process that goes on. So, yeah, a bit of a mix on that one. I wouldn't see it as an ethical, actually. Mm. I, I see it just as, you know, just it's the buyer responsibility. Right, really. buy the way. Yeah. Caveat emptor. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, But then you, you could probably say that with many things. But I've been, um, I've actually been conned by a confidence trickster one time. Have you? Yeah, it's funny, I just thought about that. But um, What happened? <laughs> so I was pretty young, and uh, I was travelling from New Jersey on train to, this is when I was going to that place in Richmond, Virginia, and oh. I was I stopped over with the Amtrak. I had to connect trains in, I think it was Philadelphia, I think. I'm not sure. My American geography really is horrible, really and it was a long time ago. And so whilst I'm waiting around for the train, and this guy came up to me and asked me if I had, I think he asked me if I had enough money for uh, an orange juice or something like that. And, and I said I didn't, I only had, uh, I think I only had a $50 note to me. And he said, you know, if there's a place just around the corner, I could go and I think it was an I can get, I can go and get us an orange juice if you want and we can get you some, break some change for you. <gasps> No, you didn't give him the $50 bill, did you? I did. He never came up with that. <laughs> Do you think? <laughs> no, he never came back. I never saw him again. And, uh, you know, I, I was a kid. You know, I, I didn't have a lot of money, but I had a lot of naivety. And, um, yeah, I, I, I that was like, most, of, most of my money that I had left for my trip because I was, like, staying with families and stuff. I didn't have much cash of my own with me. And uh, so I, I had to I had to let my parents know when I when I arrived there, and um, <laughs> anyway, there's there's some funny stories around that which you don't you're not going to get into, but okay. but yeah, it, there was that whole thing of just feeling that I trusted somebody I shouldn't have trusted, yeah, and had that trust abused. Well, it's a good lesson to learn early on, and only for fifty bucks. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the for the value price of fifty dollars, I, I learned <laughs> I learned about confidence tricksters. Yeah, I would I would say it was uh, it wasn't a pleasant experience, but it was maybe a valuable one. Mm, it must have been. It was a, it was a wake up to being to trusting people and to just taking people at the word. Mm. 
Uh, and maybe maybe also um, some of that was down to having having grown up in environments where you could pretty safely do that. You know, if someone said, uh, "Oh, you've got some money. I'll go and get us a drink." They would come back with a drink and your change. Well, probably, you probably know them, right? You'd see yeah, them yeah, 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 yeah. There's <laughs> so an, element, an element of that. <laughs> so, or they'd know someone who you didn't know. And yeah, yeah, they'd be referenced. Exactly. So, so I don't know if you want to get into how people use undue influence. Or if you want to get into the cult example, and mm. I was actually before before the cult ones really, I wanted to um, bring up something that I really dislike in the area of uh, dark persuasion skills, and one that I I've mentioned before, and um, I, I just find it sleazy is these people who do seduction. Seduction oh, we coaching. talked about this too. Those mm -hmm. are fun. Do you think that's fun? I don't know. It's fun to talk about. Fun to talk about. Okay. Not to experience. Yeah. So, so, so some people watching, listening may have come across neurolinguistic programming. So that's neurolinguistic programming okay. is a kind of how would you describe it? It's sort of based on um, speeding up therapy and processing things, kind of open-eyed hypnosis techniques, visual and uh, linguistic techniques that maybe confuse a bit or create uh, uh, just a moment of opportunity to influence and, and persuade. And so it can, they can be very powerful. Sometimes they can be very effective. Uh, and again, that sometimes depends on the ability of the person that's using them. And there are people specifically teaching some of these techniques for the purposes of getting laid. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a pretty cool purpose. <laughs> right, I mean... As long as both parties are interested. Right, there, there is an element of this. I, I was talking about this with my husband the other day, and the thing that, that I remember when I was much younger, one of my first experiences in, in a, a gay nightclub was this um, old drunk Scottish guy came up to me and just said, you wanna fuck? <laughs> and that was that was his chatter line. Like, mm, no. Well, it's very pretty clear in <laughs> no, his communication. But, but, you know, yeah, yeah. There was no undue influence or anything like that. So yeah, I just walked away and didn't think that much of it. But yeah, I've always kind of remembered it at least. It, it made the, it made an impression, um, but not not a good one. No. However, I do think that. At some point, or at certain points in that guy's life, that must have worked. I'm sure it did. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. Right. And and this is part of what these seduction guys teach. They teach the idea that it's a numbers game. So you know, essentially, go and ask for as many phone numbers, or, or just go and ask people straight up for sex. Mm -hmm. and, and at some point, someone's probably going to say yes. Right. That's one. Uh, but there are many other techniques. There, are some of the some of the ones, the ones I have the biggest problems with, I'm going up to someone and saying, do you want to have sex? I don't really have such a big problem with that. It's like, well, people they're being say, really straightforward, so yeah. you don't just say no, right? <laughs> right. There's no real seduction there. No, the, no, you don't think you could really class that, well, I mean, if you get to sleep with them, I guess it kind of is, though, right? And, but the ones I really don't like are where, they, where the mind games come into it. I don't like where the power mm. comes into it. Right, the difference in power. And I think that that's part of the mind games thing as well, because the person who's controlling the mind game is the person with the power, right? right. So one of the common techniques, uh, you may have come across this, is to elicit someone's values. So you maybe just in casual conversation go, 
Um, hey, uh, what would you really like? Okay, that seems innocuous enough, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what do you enjoy? Or uh, what do you do for fun? What right. do you like to do for fun? And in this conversation, you can really lead into, uh, so what's most important to you in life? What's most important to you in a guy or in a relationship? And so the conversation can go on that sort of way. So if I ask you, okay, well, what's what's really important to you in a guy in a relationship? What would you? What might you say? Communication, trust, respect, okay. fun. Okay, great. So so I, I'm then going to start to take that in and think. Relay that to me. I'm going to relay that back to you in some way. You know, so you know, I've I maybe had a, a relationship in the past where, um, you know, was, she was just running around and. Uh, Doing stuff and I'm not, you know, made me feel really, uh, really bad and uh, didn't treat me very well and I just didn't feel like I could trust her and it's such a big thing for me. It's like I never did anything that you know, make her not want to trust me, and it just seems like a normal conversation. It is, but what they're doing is reflecting your values back to you, so that it'll appeal to you, right? I mean, it and it's for me, it's okay if the reason behind it is to go deeper in that relationship right but if it's to manipulate me into something that i wouldn't want to do otherwise and then you're just going to use me and throw me away that's where it's not okay to me it's sociopathic because if you are reflecting back someone else's values that aren't true to yours then you are manipulating them for your own pleasure and that is sociopathic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's True. almost dictionary different definitions. Yeah, but sometimes you do it without realizing, right? You meet someone you're attracted to. Yeah, but that that's rapport then. That okay, then you call it rapport. Okay. Yeah, if, if you if you have that conversation and things go that way, and let's say you're telling mm -hmm. all this story, I'm just thinking. Of but that's actually true. Right. Then that's a natural. But rapport. what if it's not? Okay, so. But when you're manipulating that connection to make you go a certain way or to make someone believe certain things about you then that is undue influence. That is emotional manipulation. It's mind games and it's, it is sociopathic. Mm, and, and I think many people don't like to, don't even like to think that there are such people or sociopaths. Everyone thinks it's like uh, Hannibal Lecter or psycho. Like, well, that's psychopathy and that's an extreme level of psychopathy. Most psychopaths and sociopaths just have low empathy mm -hmm. and they get off on manipulating people. And when you meet them, they generally will come across as being very charming. But their their purpose, their game, where they what they enjoy in life is is playing with people mm -hmm. and taking control, having control and power, and getting getting their way, and yeah. getting and getting their way definitely. And so they can be very very charming at first but as soon as a relationship or involvement gets to a point where they start to not get their own way then hell is going to break loose mm. and you'll start to see who they really are mm. right. and unfortunately most people don't have a clue about what that is i mean i, I think i've been involved with people who are clearly sociopathic i look back at now but i had no idea at the time right and, and probably most people do, but some people end up marrying people who are sociopathic, right? Uh, I've even I remember having a client a while back. Um, her her mother. She was telling us about her mother, who was um, who was a sociopath and very clearly a sociopath, and um, you know, the the problems that that caused in the childhood, and that there was no real emotional connection or closeness there, and. Um, 
that, that think sometimes things would be done just to play with their emotions or manipulate. Wow. And, and it, it's pretty horrific. That is horrific, yeah. You know, you come across these things all the time. People have no idea about it. And a, a sociopath armed with the weapons of influence it's unbeatable, yeah. I'm saying it's unbeatable, but it's certainly something to, to watch out for. Mm. And the, the fact that you know, I think the estimates are something, it may be one in ten, I think maybe it's one in a hundred um, of people who are maybe diagnosably sociopathic. And that's high enough that most people are likely to encounter some. somebody at some point in their life, or maybe even date someone at some point in their life who's that. And so when they find themselves being manipulated, again, probably probably by itself uh, an interesting topic for a, for a, a talk or a chat, but, uh, but if they have the, the weapons of influence at their disposal as well, they have NLP seduction techniques and whatever else, they're going to be able to play you like a, you know, you'll be like a puppet on strings. Mm-hmm. Basically, they, they will get you to do whatever they want if you don't have any awareness. And we talked about the politeness thing before. Sometimes politeness is enough to get someone into bed as well, mm. or to get someone to do something they really don't want to do, because people don't like, often just don't like saying no, and, and worry about the consequences of saying no. And um, sociopaths, psychopaths definitely don't like it when somebody says no to them. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so does this tie it back to Robert Greene's? Yeah, the, the art of seduction. Of the yeah. art of seduction. So Robert Greene talks about all the different types of seducers mm-hmm. and how they do it. And his and strategies also, right? Yes. He actually gives the techniques for the seduction as well. So um, it was an interesting book to read for me because it was enlightening, but the whole time I'm reading it thinking, I'm not sure. You know, he, he just teaches it with no... No moral framework, really. I mean, a bit later on, maybe a little bit. Um, but it's really just sort of teaching it. So you could read it from the point of view of, I want to learn this stuff and apply it and figure out which kind of seducer I am and, and work with that and who, are, who I'm better off trying to seduce because it kind of does tell you that <laughs> who it's going to work best on. And um, maybe, maybe you're going to look at it from the point of view of, I want to know and understand that so I can defend myself against it so that if I do encounter that, I'm going to be like, well, back off, dude, um, if that's what you want to do. And it's just kind of interesting that, again, it's this whole idea of the tools of seduction in themselves are not necessarily ethical or unethical, um, but the intentions for the person using them or applying them are. Um, the, the art of seduction is, oh, well, is, is it unethical when you meet someone that you're attracted to that you want to sleep with them? Of course not. It's <laughs> like, desire, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you can't police against that unless you want to. You know, unless you want society to end and uh, you know reproduction to uh, reproduction to ever stop and all that. You, you just can't police against that. People are going to keep being attracted to other people, and they're going to do things to. Yeah, people are going to put themselves perhaps in the best light on a date to show their best side. Is that ethical? They don't show the, their worst side on a first date. It's just it's just how things go. It's human behavior, and you know it. When you're playing that game, you're also trying to portray your best, you know, and and you know that they're doing their best. So you know that there's a little bit that you don't have to trust. You hope they are, right? You hope that. But even then, we generally we generally sort of wait until we know someone. 
well mm. before we start thinking that we do actually know know them or know who they are. And even then, maybe we don't ever really, we don't ever really, because I don't know if we ever really know ourselves that well. So Absolutely. how could we ever truly know someone else? So not to get too too deep on this, but but really just to 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 say for this that 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 sort of point of seduction is. It's not necessarily a, a, a bad thing. Be, you know, without seduction, babies won't get born sometimes, or uh, love stories won't be told. And, uh, you just want to have fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And people are going to have sex regardless, so, uh, so there's no point pretending otherwise, really. But, it, but just the fact that people could use that stuff for just to manipulate people into doing what they want. And you say, well, people always have the option to say yes or no. Is that like that would seem to be true? When you're played around with and your beliefs, or you're made to believe something different, you lose that ability, right. right? Yeah, I think you still have to take responsibility for the decisions you make in your life, but you can only make the best decision or choice you can in any particular moment, and you may regret that afterwards, especially if you learn that the person who um, who manipulated you into sleeping with them and wasn't who they said they were. You know, they maybe tell you that they are from a royal bloodline or something like that and they've uh, just been spending the last week at, uh, at Sandringham and uh, hanging out with Prince Charles and the Queen and the likes, and so, but now they're here hanging out with you and uh, aren't you special because of it? And then you find out no, that that was all the lie. Well, you're probably not going to believe that one anyway, but you find out later that what, all the story they've spun you is a lie and that they're nothing even like the person who they've made themselves out to be. How are you going to feel after that? Oh, betrayed. You're going to mm -hmm. feel betrayed, you're going to feel cheated. And I would say that is unethical influence. Mm. But it's, so it's, it's, it's essentially lying. It's, uh, but it is for the purpose of uh, an ethical influence is somebody just wants to get their own way and uh, they don't care about the consequences of what happens to or with other people who, who are in the way of that. that. So other people then become tools to help you get what you want. That's definitely unethical. Mm. And it happens also, like we mentioned earlier, with differences of power. Yeah. Right? You can see it. An authority figure like a teacher. You can see it in, in every walk of life, really, on some, on some level. Mm. There, there is influence, and not all influence is, um, is beneficial. Not all, not all of it is with good intention. You can see it from government. You can see it in... Um, politicians. Yeah, in politicians. You can see it speakers. in business and schools. So uh, in religion especially. So yeah, um, the, there, are, there are so many parts of this. But the whole point really to me of, of teaching is you, know, you can't wipe out undue influence. It's going to be around, especially now people understand it. But when you understand it, you become empowered. Mm -hmm. So those are one of the things that I, I felt for myself is I know now, or at least much more, unless someone's really sweet and does it very well, I generally know when someone's using like, reciprocity. It's one of the most powerful of the uh, weapons of persuasion. So I give you, if I give you something as a gift, you, you feel more obliged to give me something back. So that's the reciprocity. We know, I think we know now more that, you know, when, when you sign up to someone's email or something like that and they say, get, get my free, my free ebook or my free report or whatever it is, 
and you get there. Well, we're so we're kind of immune to that now, I think, to some degree, because so many people do it, and and so we know that it's it's a sales ploy. You, you know now that that's a sales ploy. But let's say you sign up to somebody's free newsletter or email newsletter, and in the post a few days later, you get an actual hard copy of a book, or you get a a mug from their company, or a pen, with a, even as a plastic pen that has their company logo on it you're probably going to feel that urge of reciprocity. Mm-hmm. You are. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so um, charities do. Charities do. And you can be, well, you say charities are ethical? Maybe. That they might send you, I had this with a charity that I've been supporting for years. I, got, I won't say which one it is but, because I still support them. Uh, but uh, they sent me um, these Christmas, Christmas cards and stamps in an envelope and I basically it's kind of sell them is like you can have them but you know, they're free they're essentially free but they're not really because they want you to give a donation for it so it's that reciprocity thing where you can have them but here's, the, here's, here's the suggested donation <laughs> kind of thing like, did you donate? Uh, no I sent them back oh good but, but that's that's me that's uh, I'm very uh, I'm very anti being manipulated like that. Yeah. It's like if you say you've got, let's say for example, they, they send you an email or you get, let's say, we've got Christmas cards and you can get them at this price and, and we'll send them directly to you, I probably would buy them. Yeah. But send them to me and then say make a donation because you feel now feel obliged to, I'm, I'm not going to do that. You're not going to buy into it. You won't keep them either. No, I won't keep them. No. This is like when you walk down the street and someone bumps into you with a rose and they just say it's our gift to you from our religious uh, or from our charity organization that's what the moonies used to do right i mean not with roses they used to like, maybe pick a daisy or something and they used to hang around at airports they'd be in ropes you could yes. have shaved heads yes. as well right I, mean, yes. I remember seeing them back in the 80s but you don't really see them now they're not so identifiable and they don't go by the same name anymore but they still exist and, and they own a newspaper. Harry right? Krishna. Very scary. Yes, um, yes. Harry Krishna's not the same organisation, but they are they are a sect. They are a, a religious cult, really. Um, I don't know if they're necessarily as bad as the Moonies, but yeah, still not great. Mm-hmm. And um, this is all, all arguable. I mean, I have a friend who's uh, purportedly a Harry Krishna follower, um, but he's not such a strict adherent. But yeah, they, they would give you a flower at the airport. This was their this was their tactic. And you say thank you, and, and then they would try to give you some literature or engage you, and uh, you would feel obliged to to, listen, yeah. to take it. Or yeah, I've only ever had that happen to me with gypsies here in Spain, okay. who are begging, trying to give you some lucky heather. Or... Yeah, so they give you they give you some flour, and they'll say, "I'll bless you with whatever," and but give me some money back. They give money, and then if you return the flour, they'll curse you. So they'll play with both manipulation and fear. Yeah. And, and, and amazing, amazing how many people believe in gypsy curses and stuff like that. Yeah, true. Yeah, superstitions, uh, and that ties people in a lot as well. So, so I think maybe, maybe that does sort of lead us, maybe not naturally, but it does really lead us into the cult side of things, yeah. which, which to me is especially interesting. And the there's a, a great book about cults, uh, and I very highly recommended reading because I just think most people don't know about it. And uh, it's by Dr. Stephen Hassan, who was in a cult himself. Mm. He was he was a Mooney, 
actually. Mm. And um, he was deprogrammed, I guess they call it. You know, they used to do this thing like they kidnapped you basically and held you hostage and deprogrammed you and made you talk to them. Uh, I think that's what he went through, which is probably not the best way to bring someone out of a cult. It's and, what and they also, say that multinationals do when they brainstorm, when they, uh, yeah. yeah, when you get enrolled in their company. I mean, I'm, oh, right. I'm yeah, exaggerating, yeah. but yeah. No, but there are levels of it, yeah. right? I mean, there are there are definitely cults of business. Mm -hmm. Some MLMs, multi-level marketing, mm -hmm. would come would come under cults as well. So there, there's the the bite model of. Um, so I think the, the the book is something like cult persuasion techniques or something like that. But it's it's really worth a read. If you look up, you can look up that free resources online. I'm just going to probably make too much noise by the microphone, but the bite okay. model. Essentially comes under behavior control. That's that's the B. Uh, I is information control. T is thought control, and the E is emotional control. So with with that in mind, I highlighted a few ah, a nice. few of my favorites. <laughs> a few of my favorites. Uh, so in uh, the more the basically. So just to be clear, this is a model that cults use. I'll put, this up. I'll, put I'll put a link to this in the uh, in the description box as well, so people can uh, people can check it out for themselves. It's a free free download. You can print it off. This is like the more of these things that you find someone doing, the more likely it is that they are a cult. Oh wow! Okay. Because some of these things you will see in other places where maybe do want like churches general religion the more common religious institutions may do some of these but not all of them and so there are elements of the these uh, sort of controlling behaviors but and not not enough to necessarily describe them as a cult so this is when we draw where we start to draw some distinctions of the levels of undue influence right interesting very good i think with this one of the one of the most important elements to me with the cults is that most people who get taken into cults are not the kind of people who think they ever would. Mm. People think, I'm never going to fall for that. Uh, I'm, I'm never going to end up believing that. I don't really have any beliefs, or I'm not really sure what I believe in, but I don't have religious beliefs, so I'm not going to become part of a cult. They know that, and they're ready for that, and, and they know how to get around it. And so it's worth educating yourself in the, the recruitment tactics that cults use. And they use things that they use Cialdini's principles uh, weapons of influence so they, they will use those kinds of things to get you in especially things like consensus and liking developing the trust they will make you uh, if you think of yourself as uh, an intellectual they will make you feel like the most intelligent person mm. and they have this thing called love bombing as well where they just shower you with love and you're going to feel really yeah yeah but you know they it can be taken away just as quickly uh, and again the sort of the, the emotional roller coaster that they can end up putting you on. They will try and isolate you away into one of their meetings, and uh, so that you're not going to be. You know, if you go with a friend, they will try and separate you so that you can't talk to your friend or say, "Oh, this is bullshit," something <laughs> like that. And um, yeah, so so they they have their ways, and most people because if you're not educated in them, you're not going to know how to counter it. That that's just the reality of it. Some people, some people are probably never going to be open to cults. Certainly, people who maybe have absolutely no religious belief or spiritual beliefs or superstitions whatsoever are probably going to be a lot more closed off to any kind of religious uh, opening. But anyone who has any kind of uncertainty or any any particular religious or vaguely religious or spiritual beliefs is susceptible. 
Right. So it tells a little bit about it. Well, to religious cults and to, to the business cults and stuff, uh, anyone. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, so some of the things that, that come up in this that, that they will do, these are things to watch out for. And I just highlighted a few of the, the uh, maybe the top ones that I think are probably most likely to be encountered. In behavior control, financial exploitation, manipulation or dependence. And this is when you might expect that people... You know, but Scientology is one of the most famous cults, right? Uh, they don't like being called a cult, but they are. And uh, so people will have all their money tied up with them. And even with uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, like they, they have to put at least 10% of their income, maybe more in those institutions. And uh, if you ever wonder how some of them manage to spend, like here in Valencia, probably not city as well, you see them out in the streets with their stands and all their magazines all day long. How, how is it that people who have uh, no income. Yeah, <laughs> no income. We're able to do that because income is coming in from the church to support them in doing that. And that is also tactics. They don't do that to recruit. They do that to keep the people who are in there. Oh wow! Interesting, right? And so, major time spent with the group indoctrination, rituals, and self indoctrination, including the internet. And I think we can see that even with uh, maybe with political as much as religious. Um, that you get given really all, all their information. You know, there, there is a level when it comes to the information control next, but where they'll essentially encourage you to cut off all other forms of information, like other mm -hmm. sorts of access, so that you're only getting their information, their messages. And because or because the group will be there, you have that consensus element to it as well. They all saying it's right, so it must be right. Mm -hmm. That sort of uh, <laughs> fallacy of uh, the majority believing it, because to you, it seems like the majority of people that you're around actually believe it. Especially, especially if you start to exclude yourself from other groups, right? And this becomes your only group. Yeah, even even more so, because there's more of a more of an importance then to fit in mm -hmm. and to not go against what the group. Because if you then did say something or raise something different to what the group believes or thinks. They're going to let you know about it, and they're probably not going to be very nice about it either. So you're not going to want to do it again afterwards. So the discourage individualism and they encourage the group thing. So that's very much what we're saying there. They don't want you to be thinking for yourself. They want you to be thinking what they think. And so when you do have an individual thought, they're likely to come down on you and say, "No, it's not that," because and say all of them will be saying the. The company line, the cult line, you're like you're more likely to uh, to cede it to it and say, okay, uh, instilling dependency and obedience is getting people to actually feel like you know, this is what I talk about with multi-level marketing. You get into this community, and that's all your friends now, mm -hmm. and they tend to be you know, tend to be very warm, lovely people who get into these communities as well. But it becomes a reason to stay. Even when you're having doubts about the business or making any, or not making money from it, and going to the events or hanging out with these amazing people feels really good, uh, and that happens with churches and other organisations as well. You feel they really care about you, and uh, and we all we want to feel cared about, and we want to feel like we're part of something, that we belong to something. You know, you, you could even say. Uh, Toastmasters could be. I was, be. Just, I was <laughs> yeah. just thinking about that. <laughs> because you create your little community, but you know, 
that's humanity. We, we create our little communities and Toastmasters, you know, if somebody joined another public speaking organization and was coming to Toastmasters as well, I don't think anyone's actually going to have a problem with that. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so I don't think it's very cultish, but you can see elements of these, I guess, in, in just about all of life. But this is very much stuff that is used for, for nefarious purposes. And they know what they're doing. They really know what they're doing. And um, so this is very strategic, very planned out to manipulate you in a particular way. The information control is like minimizing or discouraging access to non-cult sources of information, TV, radio, internet, um, former members. You know, I talked about the Jehovah's oh, wow. Witnesses earlier, right? Yes, you did. And uh, so I used to date someone who was a Jehovah's Witness and uh, when he came out to his family, they cut him off. And they told the church, the church cut him off, and all these people that he'd grown up with and um, his family, everyone, were not allowed, they had to shun him, they weren't even allowed to acknowledge him in the street if they saw him. And um, he, wasn't, he, he, were, he wasn't allowed to meet his brother and his brother's baby, and him and his wife had a baby, and would end up sometimes getting secret calls or secret visits from his parents because they didn't want to risk that someone from the church might see them going around there and, wow. or contacting him. I mean, re really horrible stuff, but you know, that's what they'll do. They'll distance you from, from your family, that the belief that cult is more important. And they, of course, they don't think of themselves as being a cult, but um, they cut him out. Now, I, I said to you, I, I've lost contact with him now, and uh, I have no idea what what, that's that's, what the situation is there, but um, you know, I'm talking also, it's like, 20 odd years ago so it's, it's not recent but um, but certainly that still happens mm -hmm. and, and not just with cults I mean that can happen in, with um, more extreme factions of Christianity or Islam as well um, so another one here extensive use of cult generated information and propaganda so again they're just putting out misinformation the Jehovah's Witnesses have their magazines right and uh, but they'll also have exclusive reading material so um, it will be exclusive to their religion, pretty much, or anything that is in, that fits with their doctrine. Because even though they think of themselves as a branch of Christianity, most Christian churches don't think of them. It's like the Seventh-day Adventists as well, so very similar kind of thing. So they have their own doctrines. And so anything that doesn't fit with that has to be... Um, Shunned, yeah. So we don't want people getting that kind of information because they might start to argue the doctrine. Also, I mean, the cults, the cults tend to have a, a head, a leader. So the Scientologists, they had L. Ron Hubbard, but you know, he's died and um, someone else is running now. But they still have a figurehead, but they still have essentially have him. Um, but no, nearly all of these religious cults have a figurehead that was alive at least when the cult started. Did you say Apple was a cult? Apple. With Steve Jobs, <laughs> <laughs> I guess not, because there is nothing. There is no control over information. There's more no of a way. more of a community. I mean, it it's was just a trend, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But it it does give you a sense of belonging. They do a specific, you know. There are probably some cult-like elements, and people want to associate with other Apple users, and they might shun PC users. Well, I don't think it's on quite the same level, you know. Yeah, if you were if you were in a relationship with someone who had a PC, and uh, and you were an Apple user, I don't think it's going to cause you too many problems. <laughs> but you might get a bit frustrated from time to time. So yeah, and again, the even in an organisation like that, you know, 
business structure, you may see some elements of mm -hmm. of the bike model in there that are a bit cartish because to some degree corporations have to be um, that you have to buy the company line, you have to swallow the pill and uh, drink the Kool Aid, as I say, you know, the Jim Jones reference, and so. Yeah, the, there's an element of needing to do that if you want to succeed, if you want to progress, you have to be a full-on supporter. Same in a cult, if you want to rise up in a cult, the more fervent you are about it, the more zeal that you have in the cult, the more likely it is that you're going to rise above. Uh, and if you start actively getting excited about recruiting people and things like that, of course your, your status in that group is going to rise up. Yeah. And probably other people in the group will look at you and think, wow, they're amazing, look who they're bringing into the cult. Especially if they do start to bring in people who are like, otherwise skeptical or particularly known for you know, being educated. Um, they, those are real prize victories to them because it sort of helps, one thing is it helps the group to actually soften or soothe their doubts about is this is this for real or no? Any questions that might be coming up for them, but also it's a, it's a big a big win for them, an mm -hmm. achievement that says that uh, they're uh, going to keep growing and expanding, and it's not going to stop. And they don't they don't seem to stop. Uh, I think part of the reason for that is that again, it's a lack of knowledge about a lot of them, and a lot of people, a lot of the religious institutions fighting for this sort of freedom of religion, and. That actually, unfortunately, covers all of this. And freedom of speech, freedom of religion, allows all these people to to do this. Absolutely. Unfortunately, and without the education against it, they they just have no defence. There's not much defence. So the thought control was uh, the third part of the bike model. So that'd be maybe getting a person to change their name and really their whole identity. And I've seen I've seen this with a few people who actually change their names. And um, to, to fit in with the religion, they take on take on a new name and identity completely. Wow. And they completely change the way they dress. They identify uh, as essentially as a different person. It's it's quite a feat, but you no. Know, You'd have to be pretty vulnerable to actually agree to something like that. There's well, there there are techniques that they have to get people into that kind of emotional state, mm -hmm. and that would involve things like sleep deprivation, which they definitely wow. do, controlling eating habits and times, often to the points of close to starvation, and dehydrating people. Jeez. Um, so um, yeah, so they'll send people out, but to to spread the word, I guess the, the people you see on the streets and the lights, they may be out there from. Uh, eight o'clock in the morning till ten o'clock at night, or something like that. Yeah, you know? and and that's what they're doing. Standing there all day, doing that, they're gonna be exhausted. They are really exhausted. Some some of the other cults will like send people out in buses, and they have to keep going out to different places to um, push the cult to try and recruit people, uh, and they end up just exhausting them. And again, they get maybe bare minimum food for while they're doing it, and uh, restricted water, and and so people get. Worn down. I don't know about you, but when I'm tired uh, and hungry, uh, hangry as it's often called, um, is it probably a time that I am actually open to manipulation. Absolutely. If you're given the right reward. <laughs> yeah. If you keep me hungry and sleep deprived yeah. or tired, then I'll bite your head off. I'm going to get very emotional. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I used to I used to be a flight attendant. I did mm -hmm. that for nearly twelve years, and uh, 
I would, when I, especially when I was doing long haul, come back up, especially after a very long flight, would get home and, and for several days with jet lag, I would be really emotional. You might just start watching a TV commercial and crying. <laughs> oh, why am I crying? Is like, is, they're just selling like a, a soft drink. <laughs> it's, it's no reason, but something just triggers it because you're you're tired and you become overly emotional. I mean, but you'd have to be vulnerable before you actually agree to going out on fourteen hour, yeah, day long shift and being involved in this. But that, that's part Having of Having my meal controls, right? That would be part of the proving yourself, though. Mm. Uh, and there's an element that which you then need to prove yourself. So that's going to come into like controlling your guilt. And, Is this like the fraternities? Yeah, so making you feel bad for if you're not performing to what they want you to do. And, and really it's getting you to encouraging, encouraging zealotry. They want you to be so excited and passionate about it even if you're just pretending that that's what you are and um, that you're gonna yes i'm gonna go out there i'm gonna spend all that there i'm gonna beat the others i'm gonna show them just how committed i am to to the leader to mm. um the person who's saying that they have god or whatever it is that they're saying at the top so so there are many ways again i think uh, um, Dr. Hassan's book covers covers pretty much all of them, uh, and is well worth taking a look. There, there are some other sort of cult descriptors, um, which I, I don't have to hand for reference, but uh, worth worth checking into. But I I don't think uh, I, I think we underestimate um, how common this is because most of us don't know people who are in cults, mm. and yet there are hundreds of them. Yeah. And many of them still growing and, and still around, and they are out there actively trying to bring people in as well. And that they exist in in other forms, like business cults, like uh, political cults. They they exist. I mean, you can see that with Trump in the US, oh, right? Wow. I mean, the people who who seem to follow him, the the real sort of ones who are bought into the whole thing and think he's like the second coming of Jesus and. Um, they won't be convinced otherwise. They don't want to listen to evidence that might sort of say, well, there's not a lot to prove that he actually is. You've just decided that that's the case, and so you're going to look for things that back that we'll up and, and support your belief and reject anything that doesn't. Like You're only going to watch Fox News and you're only going to hang out or speak to other people who don't disagree with you and think Trump's amazing. Yeah. That is cult-like behaviour. Uh, very, very much so. It might not be quite as full on, uh, but it's definitely a lot of the elements that you get here in the, in the bike model as well. Enough, enough to make it cult-like, mm -hmm. if not actually a cult itself. Isn't it like what the sort of strategies that Hitler would have used? Well, Hitler is, is an interesting. Hitler was uh, like Trump, but very gifted with rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And that's a bit of a different element to what we're talking about here. Trump, as much as some of his speeches are insane and don't make much sense, he, he's actually very good at riling people up and getting emotional responses out of people, even if they're negative responses. Mm. Um, but he is particularly good at pandering to people's fears. And, and he knows how to use rhetoric. Now, I have heard, I don't know how true this is, but I've heard that um, someone has said that he regularly had a copy of Hitler's speeches by the side of his bed. I, 
that wouldn't surprise me. I don't, but I don't know that it's true. Uh, the only the most surprising bit of that for me would be that he can actually read. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it generally wouldn't surprise me. The, the 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 same the similarity for me is the demagoguery of it. Mm. They they're playing to people's fears and um, Trump. though also is a, a master a master of manipulating the press. Mm. And you know, the press in that time is nothing like it is now. You have twenty four hour news cycles now. I I actively blame the American media for Trump winning the election in the first wow. place because he was more or less given 24-hour coverage in in the run-up to the elections. And there is just that uh, thing of influence and even kind of a, maybe a, a fa- uh, the fantasy. Is it fantasy? No, fantasy would be false, but the, um, the element of where people are more likely to go with what they see more often. That's yeah. human nature. Well, when it takes seven times repeating a message will make make a sale. So even though Trump was awful and he did all these awful things before he ever got elected and said so many horrible things, he was on TV all the time. Yeah. And I think that is why so many people voted for him. Probably. And that he was causing enough of a stir to at least make it look like he was going to shake stuff up. Which he has. Which he certainly <laughs> has. But not he really... Not in any good ways. No, absolutely. So, so uh, yeah, there are elements of cultishness in it, but I think that's a lot more the rhetorical communication, and that's more these sort of Aristotle, the art of rhetoric, and um, the devices, things that you may have even come across in Toastmasters, like the power of three, like saying something three times, three times. Mm-hmm. exactly, or putting things in a certain structure. Or um, you know, it's different structures of language and speaking that are almost poetic, but have influence in themselves and are used in certain ways. That's more the art of rhetoric, and that's something that Trump actually, whether intentionally or unintentionally, does pretty well. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I don't, don't have much respect for him, but no. I, I can um, at least respect his ability to be able to utilize his skill there he wouldn't be where he is. And I don't think he's, I think he's insane, but I don't think he's stupid. So, <laughs> so I think you know, in, some, in some ways he's very, he's very clever, especially um, in how he does his speeches. Even, even when they're not making sense, he's still influencing a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Definitely. He displays power. Yeah. So, uh, so cultish elements, mm-hmm. but, uh, but not a cult in itself. Uh, and, and not, not exactly like Hitler, but there are there are comparisons. Mm-hmm. There are comparisons, of course. Um, teaching thought stopping techniques. This is another part of thought control. This is one that most people probably haven't come across before. Teaching thought stopping techniques. This is kind of like sticking your fingers in your ears, going la 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 la, because I heard something I don't like, and I'm not even going to let myself think it. Um, so it will be something to uh, you start having you start having negative thoughts about something. You have to do something to replace that. You have to get rid of that thought. Okay. So the cults teach you thought-stopping techniques? Yes. For the thoughts that they don't want you to think about. Right. So so they'll indoctrinate you to think that thinking certain things is bad. So uh, when you get this thought, this is a bad thought, and you need to use these techniques. Now, now interestingly, I mean, I, I've used before, effectively, this thing of... Um, having a, a band on, like an elastic band on your wrist and snapping it when you have a, a negative thought. Wow. It, but it's a thought-stopping technique. It's a physical punishment. It's a physical punishment. Jeez. 
and it's not it's, the, it's, it's not the end of the right. And it, it sounds pretty bad, but I mean, you, you can only use it to positive ends. Yeah, but, but sure. But this is but this is used for gain for for yeah for negative nefarious ends. gain nefarious yeah. ends. It's not it's used for the benefit of the cult, not for the person. Absolutely. And so thought taking. I mean, some of the things I have here, what, the thought stopping techniques. Um, denial, rationalization, justification, wishful thinking, chanting, meditating, praying, speaking in tongues, singing or humming. These are some of the things that they use in particular ways to get people to stop actually thinking. Wow. Interesting, right? It is. So the, the last of the four in the bike model is the emotional control. And you know, I think with, with this as well, there, is a, there are emotion-stopping techniques as well as thought-stopping techniques, and probably some, some similar ones, but you start feeling, maybe you start feeling bad, you have to stop yourself feeling that way. I, I don't know if you've ever heard people talk about the cult of positivity. Mm-hmm. And so the, the positive thinking movement. Yes, that I've heard of. Yeah. Right, and to me that's deeply toxic. But it doesn't seem like it should be, right? It's like, shouldn't we be more positive? Uh, Where is the toxicity? Because you are supposed to only ever think positive thoughts. So you, more or less you kind of punish yourself for not thinking any positive thoughts. Or if you have a negative thought, you punish yourself. as Well, well I'm not being positive enough, I have to be more positive. Mm. So there's this idea, it's why it's often called a cult of positivity, because you have to stop your negative thoughts. And to me, you know, okay, you don't want to be negative all the time. But if you are, just accept it. If you are natural, well, it. if you're a negative Nelly, you might want to improve your life a little bit and, and try and be a bit happier and work on that. No, but if you do get casual negative thoughts, it's best if you just accept them I and think understand where they're coming from. I think there are healthier ways to, to find inner peace and happiness than yes. uh, essentially emotion stopping or thought stopping techniques. Is that uh, and really this is this is about punishing yourself for having thoughts that you don't want to be having and trying to manipulate yourself and you start thinking of yourself as not being good enough mm. when you don't manage to achieve the level of being positive all the time but the reality is no one no one can be positive 100% of the time so people who seem that way it's fake they're fake mm. because what else can what else can they be um, I'm not saying it's impossible that someone couldn't be positive 99% of the time it's just unlikely mm. uh, and most of the time there, there's going to be some faintness to it but also there's a loss of range of emotion we are designed to experience a whole range of emotions and most, mostly that's beneficial to us that's how we understand and interpret the world now it's not good if your emotional state is so negative that it's stopping you from experiencing life or having any enjoyment well that could lead help. to depression it's a different thing right Right, but to have negative thoughts sometimes in itself is not a bad thing and often worth exploring. And it's important to um, to own the, the light and the dark of our of our aspects and nature and to sometimes explore them. And to that, but if we, if we always have to be positive all the time, first of all, you have to be fake then in that environment in an environment where you're supposed to be positive. If you don't feel good, you have to like you would uh, let's say you go to a, a, a religious meeting and they think you're part of part of what they want to do or part of the group, but you've had some realization that it's not real. And mm. um, you might still go and pretend just to still be a part of the group and part of the community because saying you're not is going to mean getting kicked out. 
it's this kind of thing as well. You know, you go to these sort of events or organisations where you have to be positive all the time. You're not allowed to have a bad day, essentially. You're having a bad day. You better sweep it under the rug. And, just uh, don't show it. Does, yeah, don't show it. And you've got to put on your best positive face. You've got to act. Mm. And that's not authentic behaviour. Absolutely. And that's why I, like, I think it's important to be authentic. Yes, we can improve ourselves and we can become happier. But when you're trying to force yourself to be something that you're not, it's like you can encourage it and you can lead yourself and, and you can help train yourself. But to get to a point where you are essentially punishing yourself for not being that or for not being good enough or for having that, I had a bad thought, it's like that's thought policing. And you know, your thoughts are your thoughts. Your thoughts are just things that come up. You have no real control over them. So what you, it's what you do ultimately that you do have control over, your actions you take, you do. But thoughts are going to come up in your mind all the time that you have no real say or control in. So uh, the, the, the only other one that I had over here um, that I'd highlighted was promoting feelings of guilt or unworthiness, like with your identity, and this is what we're just talking about really, um, not living up to your potential, um, your family is deficient, so you come from a broken family, your past is a bit suspect, you have some uh, unwise affiliations, you're having bad thoughts or feelings or uh, doing naughty things in secret. <laughs> So, so those kinds of things that will be used against you, wow. and used to help condition you to you know, the, this is the right way to do it, and a lot of that is tied into very well um, established and through historically well established religious ideas of purity and uh, how we should be and morality that isn't necessarily true, but it's just so well enough established for people to buy it as being true, or to have maybe already been uh, somewhat indoctrinated into that in, in the past as well. And uh, it can be used against you. Mm. The cults are really, the, to me, the darkest side of, of dark influence. Of dark influence <laughs> yeah. um, because they really do destroy lives and families. And, uh, well, they get people to kill themselves, right? I mean, that has happened, yeah. yeah. There's been suicide cults. Well, you know, the, the one I said about the Jim Jones at the Kool Aid, I don't know if you know that story, but I mean, he, he had like a, what do you call it, a jungle cult, is it? He took all these people into the jungle, they set up their own community. Um, I think the FBI were going to raid them. It's an, it's, it's definitely an interesting story to, to read into. And so he um, he basically got everyone to poison themselves. He poisoned some Kool-Aid and had everyone poison and drinking the Kool-Aid to poison themselves, the children that were there, everybody. And uh, I, I don't know offhand the numbers that were actually that actually died on that day. Um, but they did it because they had some kind of advanced warning that they were about to be raided by the FBI. Oh, wow. Very, very cool summary. It's, it's a while back, but you know, it's not the only example of that happening. And there, there, have, been, uh, there have been other examples of suicide cults as well. Um, but also some very strange ones. There have been some very strange sex cults as well. Uh, just... I mean, it's, it's all strange, mm -hmm. and we all think that we wouldn't be subject to it, we wouldn't fall for it, or we'd never get involved in that. And, and the reality is most of us 
don't really know that we wouldn't. We couldn't really say for sure unless you've actually... I mean, if you've been exposed to all that manipulation, it's very difficult to resist. Or you have some understanding of how that's being used, how that's being used to manipulate you and what they're actually doing. So this is one of the reasons why I think the dark side of influence and persuasion is so important to explore because it's, it's armory. It's mm. it's your defence against the dark arts. It's your toolbox. <laughs> yeah, it really is. So once you are educated in this, you can defend yourself against it, and you can decide whether you want to be influenced or not. This isn't that you will never be influenced again. It's really just you have a choice. Mm -hmm. You have a choice then of to you can be aware of what's going on, and you can at least stop this and say, "Do I want to be influenced in this direction? I can see what you're doing. Is it for my benefit? You can take that step back of." What's your intention here? What is it? What is it you're doing this for? You're just trying to make a sale. You're just trying to make a buck, or um, do you, are you actually doing this because you believe in this and you think it's going to genuinely be beneficial for me? And then you can say, okay, well, um, maybe yes, maybe no. Make your make your own informed decision, empowered decision, with with all the information and seeing the hidden elements that are going on. Yeah. So, to, so to me, that is why I want people to to know about this stuff and to really be a bit more educated about how influence and persuasion works and how you can defend yourself against undue influence. Mm -hmm. So, I think with what we discussed, we've got we've deep dived into the dark side of persuasion. I think so. Yeah. Is there something you'd like to address as in what next for the people listening? I, I would encourage I would encourage anybody to check out Robert Cialdini's book Influence uh, because it's to me it is the classic book on influence and, and persuasion skills. There are there are many others out there, not so many I've read that were good. I mean Robert Greene is definitely good, very masterful as well. And the book on cults by uh, Dr. Stephen Hassan, or any of his information, again, I'll link it all in the description underneath, but any of that is going to be worth checking out. And any ideas, but more than anything, just sometimes take a step back and take a, don't always be in the situation, take a step back, at least mentally, and say, what's really going on here? What's, what's this person's intention? And then you might start to at least see where techniques are being applied or what, what's really going on there rather than just assuming that people will have your best intentions at heart. Or, um, and, and again, maybe tying a bit with uh, encountering sociopathic people. They think, why, why is it? They're all so charming and they agree to everything and we have such a wonderful time, but they don't like it if I say no. Or you know, Stuff that might actually get you to take a step back and question that and look at what's really going on. So those red flags usually come up, but we don't always pay attention to them. We can, yeah, we can override them. Mm -hmm. and, and it's when we do that it's when problems start to arise. Agreed. Wonderful. That's my thoughts. How about you? Any closing thoughts? I would say I wouldn't be able to summarize it better than you have, really. Just uh, talking about this has helped me understand that there are hidden tensions that I hadn't realized before. And that people do things for different reasons. And I, I may not agree with their reasons. So I'd like to be able to choose. Uh, it, for me, it's been a really interesting chat. So thank you for, no, thank you for coming you. in. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. And uh, certainly going to do some more podcasts in the future. We might have Aida back, hopefully, and, uh, at some point as well. So we'll look, for, we'll look forward to that. But in the meantime, I hope you've enjoyed this. Please leave any comments or thoughts about what you've heard today. And check out some of the resources below as well. 
and protect yourself against influence and get your defences against the dark arts, Harry Potter style, uh, <laughs> in the description box below. So for today's Present Influence podcast, goodbye. Goodbye.